Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Howdy, spooktacular people. This is Jill in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. This episode is entirely listener-supported. If you'd like to join me as an executive producer, check out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. Thanks for listening. Keep it spooky, y'all. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 176th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we're going to be looking at the German castle near Holland, Michigan. It's actually the German castle at Castle Park, Michigan. This was suggested to us by our listener, Becky Sturgeon. Denise, this is another one of those locations that when you look at the haunted part of the history, there's not a whole lot of there there, just a couple of lines. So we've added a couple of other legends that come from that area to kind of fill out the back end of the show. And that always works because we want to give our listeners full content. We also have the ninth installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition on this episode. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Sierra. Hey, Sierra. Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Kenneth. Hey, Kenneth. Angela. Hey, Angela. Billy. Hi, Billy. And a name I get to butcher, Justine, I believe. And hello, Justine. I would have pronounced it Justine, too, so hopefully we got it right. And now, this moment in oddity. In episode 175, we featured the Little People tribes in America. Though many believe these tribes to be just legend, there was a discovery in 1932 that adds credence to all of the stories. Two men, Cecil Maine and Frank Carr, were digging for gold in the San Pedro Mountains near Casper, Wyoming. They'd been using pickaxes and shovels to work a rich vein of gold, and they were continuously being frustrated by just more and more rock. They decided to dynamite a section of the mountain to make the work go faster. The explosion revealed a cave that was 15 feet long and 4 feet high. The men explored the small cave and they discovered a 14-inch fully formed humanoid mummy. It appeared to be a male and was sitting in a cross-legged position on a ledge. It was described as looking like an old man with a low and flat forehead, flat nose, heavy-lidded eyes, and a wide mouth. Fingernails could clearly be made out, and the head had a pliable jelly-like substance on top. Anthropologists declared it was a hoax, but when they studied the mummy, they were shocked at what they found. X-rays revealed a man-like skeleton, and it appeared he had been killed by a blow to the head that smashed part of the skull and damaged the spine. The jelly-like substance on top of the head was brain matter. They also found a mouth full of pointy canines. 
They estimated the skeleton belonged to a man 65 years old. The story gets a little murky here. Some stories say the exams were performed by the American Museum of Natural History and certified genuine by the Anthropology Department of Harvard University. Other stories claim that the University of Wyoming conducted the research and found the body was that of a diseased child. The Pedro Mountains mummy made its way into sideshows and then was purchased by a Casper businessman named Ivan T. Goodman. New York businessman Leonard Walder took over the ownership of the mummy after Goodman died. Walter died in the 1980s, and the mummy was never seen again, which certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now we have This Month in History. In the month of January in 1502, Portuguese explorers landed at Guanbara Bay on the coast of South America and named it Rio de Janeiro. The name means River of January. The bay forms the opening of a river, and so that's how Brazil's second largest city got its name. The French wanted to make a play for the area, and so in 1565, two years of bloody battles began. 500 French colonists already occupied Villa Gagnon Island in Guanbara Bay under the leadership of Nicolas Durand de Valle Gagnon, so they had a strategic position to invade. The French lost and were debarred from the city. To protect from further invasions, the city was moved to a safer position on a hill, which was later named Castle Hill. In 1568, a medieval citadel was laid out and sugarcane was planted all around the settlement. In 1660, the town became a seat of government, and by 1763, the colonial capital was transferred to Rio de Janeiro. In 1889, the city officially became the capital of the Republic of Brazil. Western Michigan was once an area of vast dunes along the shores of Lake Michigan. Mature forests attracted the timber industry in the early 1800s, and during the Victorian era, the beauty attracted people to come live. One of those people was a German immigrant, and he brought his love and inspiration of German castles to the area outside of Holland, Michigan, along Lake Michigan. He built a small replica of a German castle for his family. Castle Park developed around the castle as cottages were built for vacationers. The castle became an inn and now serves as a community center. It would seem that one of the original family members chooses to hang out here in the afterlife. There are also some interesting legends related to this area of Lake Michigan. Join us for the history and hauntings of the German castle at Castle Park. The logging industry came to this area of western Michigan in the early 1800s to harvest the vast forests and mill the trees into lumber. This lumber was then shipped across Lake Michigan over to Chicago via a schooner, and that really helped to build the city of Chicago, especially in the later 1800s after the Chicago fire. They needed a whole lot of wood because the whole city had burned, so they got a lot of it there from western Michigan. The trees were almost completely harvested, and soon the area was just barren dunes. By the mid-1800s, the forests were regrowing, and families started visiting on vacations. A Vermont militiaman had received a land grant after the War of 1812, and this patch of land on Lake Michigan was that property. 
Edward J. Harrington purchased the property in 1863, then sold it to the Turner family, who platted it for sale. Mr. Turner died and his widow remarried and no longer wanted the land. It then passed through the hands of six other owners before Emil Peller bought it and sold it to Michael Schwartz. Michael Schwartz was a German immigrant who came to America to escape Prussian militarism in the 1800s. He settled in Chicago and began buying properties. He soon became very successful and also a very wealthy man. He moved to Michigan where he found a prime piece of real estate on Lake Michigan that was beautiful and also isolated. He decided to build his family a German feudal castle and he did that in 1890. It was three stories and very Victorian. He felt like this estate would protect his wife and their six daughters and two sons from a corrupt and uncivilized world. Unfortunately, the kids were not crazy about moving away from the city life. They were very unhappy, and within two years, the family was moving back out of the castle. They built a home in nearby Holland and never returned to the castle. To us, it seems like a rather abrupt move, and many people besides of us wondered why. In 1893, Reverend John H. Parr was headmaster for the Chicago Preparatory School, and he had taken a group of students out on an outing to Makatawa Beach on Lake Michigan. The group happened upon the German castle. Reverend Parr fell in love with that castle, and he was intrigued. He bought it, and he opened it the following year as a summer camp for the boys and girls. That would be a super, super cool camp, to go to camp in the beautiful area that's near Lake Michigan and be staying like in a castle. I would have totally wanted to go. Parents would come to pick up their children, and they would hang out for a while enjoying the area. This happened so often that soon the property was more of a family summer camp. The Parr family saw how things were going, and in 1896, the camp was closed, and the castle was refurbished as an inn. So they figured, hey, if the parents are going to come hang out with their kids, let's really make this into some kind of a money-making operation here. Well, and not only that, is that it's nice to be able to do something together as a family instead of always having to separate out. Very true. They added rooms, expanded the sunrooms, and built a lobby. The inn was not enough for the demand, however, and the Pars started selling lots around the castle for families to build summer cottages. This came to be known as the Castle Club, and the whole property was called Castle Park. It was a two-day drive from Chicago at that time. A hotel brochure from 1908 read, Castle Park is a 40-acre tract, one and one and a half miles south of Makatawa Dock. The castle is only a three-minute walk from Lake Michigan, which has a hard beach with shallow water, giving superb bathing and boating. Here can be found real country life, steamer excursions to the other resorts along the lake, visits to adjacent peach orchards, picnics on the magnificent beach and in the woods, tramps through fine forests, climbing wooded hills, tennis courts, free golf links, and above all, a delightful home atmosphere and good table. Several cottages are in the park, most of the occupants eating at the castle table. The average population of the park in July and August is about 60. Board with room per week for one room is $8, two for $13. Board alone, $5. And there's a special rate to families. Can you imagine $8 for a room for the whole week? (laughs) I know. It would be, well, of course, compared to what they made back then, but I'm like, woohoo, let's go. No kidding. Reverend Parr had a nephew named Carter Pennell Brown. He arrived at the castle from Chicago via Lake Michigan. During the passage, a horrible storm hit, and the steamship that he was aboard was lashed about. Carter was just a baby at the time, 
So his parents had tied his baby buggy to a handrail in their steamship cabin to try to keep him safe. Can you imagine having to lash the baby buggy to a handrail and hold on for dear life? I would have been horribly ill as well. Carter loved the property, and by the time he was 12, he was working for his uncle. His main duty was driving the wagon to the steamship dock at Makatawa. In 1917, the Pars decided to retire, and Carter, who was now 23, took over Castle Park. He married his childhood sweetheart, Marion Wilk. The Carters planted the ivy that covers much of the castle and engaged in a large expansion of the castle and property. First, they doubled the capacity of the inn and added multiple fireplaces. They also built more cottages. In 1922, a Greek amphitheater was built at a nearby natural dell and it hosted hundreds of plays in the annual Castle Caper, which was a musical. Castle Park had its own depot where the electric cars of the Interurban Railroad would stop between Holland and Sagatuck. The Interurban Railway was an electric railway that featured streetcar-like light electric self-propelled rail cars. By the year 1915, America had 15,500 miles of interurban railways. An interesting stat is that the interurban railways were the fifth largest industry in the United States at the height of their use. The Castle Park Line brought electricity to the castle and cottages. The railway closed in 1926, and most of them were done in the United States by 1930. Extra amenities like clay court tennis courts and a nine-hole golf course were added. They also started the Castle Park Amateur Horse Show. A meeting house was built in 1958 for services. It was said of Carter, Castle Park, its panache, and its many pleasurable aspects are the direct result of Carter Pennell Brown's lifetime dedication. With the help of his delightful wife, he has given Castle Park its life and its spirit. I thought it was really interesting to go down that little side hole there, as I like to call it, my rabbit hole about the Interurban Railway. Because I'm like, what exactly is that? Because it didn't just say it was streetcars. So I thought it was fascinating that they had these electric self-propelled rail cars going out to further off areas and that at the height of its use, it was the fifth largest not form of transportation industry. Fifth largest industry. But what's even more funny about that is that they closed it all down. And now in 2017, everybody's trying to go towards electric <laughs> type transportation. <laughs> I love it because you think, OK, well, it's past its prime. <laughs> They've got to go ahead and retire those. And indeed, that's what everybody really wants in their cities now. <laughs> it is kind of funny when you think about it. My how things go around. I love that the newspaper article also said that it was not only that he gave the castle its castle park its life, but it said and its spirit. And so that can be kind of tongue in cheek a little bit. Yeah, unfortunately, he's not the ghost that haunts the place. Although if there was a spirit actually there that would be haunting, I would think it'd be him because he's really the one who loved that place and gave it everything that it had. I know. So a former visitor said of the property, I remember very well manicured gardens around it during the late 60s and up to the late 70s. Herb gardens, boxwood hedges, etc. all gave a very English idea to what I now understand was supposed to be a Germanic castle. A wing to the castle had been added decades ago in order to accommodate the needs of the inn. The interior of the castle had some vestiges of being Victorian in nature. Much of it had been modified as large dining rooms, kitchens, etc., I visited the castle last year and found that the addition had been removed and the castle's exterior restored. The super English pub in the lower level appears to have also been restored. And these were just little tidbits that I found in different places on the internet because there wasn't a whole lot of information on this location out there. 
As a matter of fact, I had to go into the Wayback Machine to find a website that had an old brochure on it so that I could find out most of the stuff that I found on this. The Wayback Machine. So, Diane, now it's out there. She time travels. <laughs> That's right. I wish you actually could do that. I'm just going to get in that machine and go back and check it out. And then I'll come back and tell you what it's like. And she'll come back with like bruises and where <laughs> she gets beat up and has to run away. She might have to show up naked. Uh, no, let's not. What? That's what the movie did, remember? The yes. time traveler's wife. <laughs> That's true. During the 60s, Ambrose Holford was a professor of fine arts at the University of Tennessee. He was also a Castle Park cottage owner. He brought a large group of his most talented students up to the castle to serve as waiters and pixies, which is what they called the waitresses. The waiters lived in the shack and the waitresses lived in the hen house. Yeah, that wouldn't get anybody heated up today. (laughs) I know. I think that's a little politically incorrect now, but I thought it was cute. It is cute. These groups would put together incredible musicals and talent shows at the amphitheater that sounds kind of dirty dancing-esque to me. It does. When I saw that, that's what I pictured in my mind is that movie and how you would have these group of young kids that were running the summer resort and performing for everybody with the dances mm-hmm. and then having a talent show at the end. It's That's totally what I saw this place being. Which, I mean, this will probably totally nerd me out, but I've always thought it'd be cool to go to a place like that. Well, you know, they have that stuff nowadays where it's all in one, but it's not like how it was back then in the 60s and stuff. No, you're talking sandals, hanging out, go eat, you know, lay on the beach, go parasailing. It's not quite like this. In 1985, the 80 residents of the summer cottages at Castle Park decided to buy the castle and the inn was closed. The castle was restored to the original Victorian design and the additions were removed. The German castle now serves as a library and bingo hall for summer residents of Castle Park. It is a private property and not open to the public and owned by the Castle Park Association. So if anybody from that area knows a little bit more about that, that's the last of what I could get. So I'm not sure exactly if that's what it's being still used for or if there's something else going on there. So we'd love to know any current stuff. There is a history of supernatural manifestations on the property. One of Michael Schwartz's daughters managed to get away to the nearby city of Holland at some point, and she met a boy. As it goes with these stories, Denise, she falls madly in love with the boy. Her father does not like him and forbids any kind of dating going on there or them being together. He doesn't want her to have anything to do with this boy, especially this one in Holland. So the couple decides to meet secretly one night, and they eloped. Schwartz heard about it and tracked them down on the road, shotgun in hand. He threatened the couple and the daughter returned to the castle with her father and he locked her in one of the rooms. So now she turns into Rapunzel. <laughs> Something like that, I guess. The, the poor girl, of course, weeps bitterly. She's glancing longingly out the window looking for her lost love. And she thinks she's just lost the love of her life. Now, as we said early on, the family only lived here for two years. So in the space of that two years, this if this is a true story, had to have happened in that point. And then he moves the family to the city where the boy was. So I don't know how against Holland he was. And again, we don't know why they moved. It's really bizarre. I wish I did have a Wayback Machine so I could go back and see, why would you build this beautiful castle, move your family in there, and want to use it kind of as a fortress against the world? And then two years later, you're moving to the city. 
So I don't know if the kids just complained so much about we hate being out here in the middle of nowhere that he just felt like he had to. I don't know if it was a money thing. I'm not sure. But then he moves the whole family to where this boy was. I don't know if they ever did end up getting back together again, if she married him. Not sure what all happened there. But what people are seeing here at the castle is the apparition of something that looks like a female. And she's looking out the castle window. And she seems sad, forlorn. So is this just an imprint of emotion that's been left on the castle? Because she didn't die there. We're not sure, but that's what people are seeing. Or have they been seeing a female apparition and they made up this legend to go with it and none of this story is even true? There was a lot of people who stayed at the inn. Did somebody die there? Maybe. We don't know. But one of the interesting things about the area where Castle Park is located is that it is along one side of a mysterious phenomenon known as the Lake Michigan Triangle. This triangle's three points hit Manitowoc in Wisconsin, Ludington, Michigan, across from that city, and south to Benton Harbor, Michigan. Nearly 40 aircraft have just disappeared over this region. One of those was Northwest Flight 2501, which left New York in June of 1950, headed to Minneapolis, and disappeared near Benton Harbor. Extensive searches turned up nothing, not one piece of wreckage. A Soviet trainer jet disappeared during an air show near the Triangle, and people have evaporated into thin air as well. In April of 1937, the freighter O.M. McFarland was sailing towards Port Washington in Wisconsin with Captain George Donner at the helm. He decided to retire to his cabin for a bit. The ship soon passed through the Lake Michigan Triangle. The captain had not returned from his nap by 6 p.m., so a crew member went to wake him. There was no answer to his repeated knocks. He tried the door handle and found it to be locked. Fearing that the captain might be in distress, he got another crew member and they busted open the door. The captain was not in his cabin. He was nowhere to be found on the ship. He had just disappeared. There are also numerous UFO sightings over the Triangle. So many, in fact, that the FAA created a special lake reporting service to keep track of them all. When you have a government agency creating a special reporting service, that starts to make you think there's some legitimacy to these UFO sightings. Yeah, well, and kind of what surprises me, this is like a big deal, and I've never heard of it until we were doing the show. You hear everything about the Bermuda Triangle, and here's one just like right in the north, right here in the United States, and nothing. And it, it literally is just right over a section of that little section of Lake Michigan. It's not the whole thing. It's just that midsection right there. And it seems to be just that triangle that has had these issues come up. And I had never heard of it either, Denise. I just put in here, I'm like, well, I wonder if there's like some other haunted stuff nearby. Obviously, the Felt Mansion came up because that's right next door to uh, Holland, Michigan here. But we'd already talked about that on another episode. So I'm like, oh, gosh, what else can we do? Because there's nothing haunted near here. Let me look at legends, and this popped up, and I went, really? I've never heard of that. Another legend from the area is an African-American one. This is for a city that's a little further north called Muskogon, and I hope I said that right. And this deals with a hoodoo man. A family discovered that their woodpile had been raided in the middle of the night. As if that was not bad enough, whomever the thief was, he had relieved his bowels all over the spot where the woodpile had been. That's lovely, Diane. A nice little calling card, if you will, Denise. The family was irate, and they called out a local hoodoo man to help them catch the culprit. Okay, so, you know, you were talking about every time we say the other stuff, it reminds you. Every time we say hoodoo, it reminds me of Dr. Facilier. 
and you know he's one of the best villains out there so hey that's all that's all good he is a good villain he arrived with a long nail and he sticks the pointed end of that nail into the fecal matter or the deposit left by the thief as we would like to say and then he drove that nail into a nearby tree he tells the family that they're going to soon know who the guy is that took their wood because of this nail that he's put in the tree And the reason why they're going to know is because the man's going to be completely backed up, if you will, until that nail is removed from the tree. So after a couple days, a local hospital has a man show up who's complaining of the worst constipation he's ever had. And it was only getting worse. The family hears about it. So now they know who their thief is. They're satisfied that they found the robber and they think, okay, he's been punished enough. Let's go get the nail out of the tree. Oh, nice family. Yeah, I mean, forgiving. You know, it's just wood, hey? Well, the problem was someone had cut down the tree and dragged it off in this time period here. So it was impossible for the family to pull the nail from the tree. And apparently the woodnapper died a very painful death. Wow. That's a cute little story that kind of went to the dark side. (laughs) Now, I don't know if it's true, but that's one of the stories they tell there about the hoodoo man and the power that he had, apparently. So I guess if you're having any issues with uh, somebody you don't really like, if you can get a hold of some of their <clears throat> and stick a nail in it and find a nice tree, you might have yourself a little bit of fun, I guess. Children, do not try this at home. There are many legends in Michigan, just as there are in every state in America. Is there something weird going on around and in Lake Michigan? Is Castle Park on the western shores of Michigan haunted? Is the German castle haunted? That is for you to decide. Our next episode is going to be one of epic proportions, Denise. Oh, very, very cool. What happened is we have covered the Washoe Club in Virginia City. We've had a lot of listeners suggest other locations in Virginia City. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to do a round table featuring several locations in Virginia City? So we're going to be talking about Haunted Virginia City on the next episode with several of our listeners. Yes, and it's going to be a lot of fun for you all to hear their personal accounts and what they can bring to the table, so to speak. And now, the ninth installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. And this one is, How Many Legs Does a Ghost Need? Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prassel. Reading these many, many ghost reports, I have seen certain patterns that develop. There's a house on the outskirts of town. Three or four families have tried to live there, but they can't. There's an investigation. They hear strange noises, clanking of chains, for instance, maybe some moans, some furniture is pushed around by unseen hands, and further developments are being awaited. They often end that way. But I've got two articles today that don't fit the pattern. They have some similarities with one another, but if I had to categorize them, I wouldn't know where to put them. The first one was published in the Los Angeles Herald on November 7th of 1906, and the headline is Four-Legged Ghost in Frog Hollow Cemetery. Special to the Herald, Manchester, Connecticut, November 6th. Consternation reigns in Frog Hollow over a four-legged ghost, which has been repeatedly seen in St. James Cemetery by persons who cut across the burial grounds to reach the village. Miss Mabel Willis, who saw the ghost, has not been able to leave the house since her experience. Matthew Moriarty placed little credence on the story, and last night, when it became dark, he told his friends in the village grocery store that he was going through the cemetery. 
As Moriarty reached the center of the cemetery, he heard a noise like that made by horses' hooves, accompanied by the clanking of chains. He was terror-stricken. The clattering came from one of the roads in the cemetery and continued until it reached a spot near the receiving vault. Moriarty saw a white object emerge from the vault, and as it came toward him, he noticed it had four legs. He started on a dead run and never looked behind him until he reached the store. Now, that one has a bit of a sense of humor to it. The next one, I'm not so sure about. It was published on May 21st of 1908 in the New York Tribune. The headline is, 101 Girls See Ghost appears in 6th Avenue Cemetery and leaves crutch. 101 girls who work in a 6th Avenue dry goods store are ready to swear that a ghost walked from a graveyard in the rear of the building yesterday. The reserves of the new West 20th Street Police Station hunted for the ghost for half an hour and found his crutch, which was material, not ghostly, although they couldn't find the ghost himself. No one has been buried in this cemetery for three quarters of a century. The store shuts it in on the east, high brick walls edge it on the side streets, and the rest of the block is covered with other buildings. The girls say the old man had long white whiskers, and that one of his legs was missing. He carried a crutch, the girls declared afterward, and after laying his tombstone in its place, he hobbled across the graves to a high brick wall that fronts in 21st Street. Then he clambered over the wall and disappeared. A policeman found a crutch. It was near the wall in 21st Street. A skull and crossbones had been cut on one side, and the wood was worn and shiny with age. I'm inclined to think that maybe that was a living human being. What he was doing in the cemetery, I don't know. Why a one-legged man would leave behind his crutch, I don't know. And what the skull and crossbones is doing on that crutch, well, it's you just never know what you're going to run into with Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prossel, and you've been listening to Spectral Edition. I have close to 300 of these articles, and I post one each Wednesday on my website, The Merry Ghost Hunter. There you can also find previously released audio versions of Spectral Edition. The name of the website again, The Merry Ghost Hunter. I hope you stop by. Thanks so much for that, Tim. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We also got some comments from BJ on the website. I don't know if this will count as an international review, but I'm currently deployed to Afghanistan and wanted to drop you a line to let you both know how much I'm enjoying your podcast. You've given me a great list of spooky and interesting places to visit when I return to the States and made these long hours away from my family go by a little faster. Thank you, and I look forward to more stories in the future. And my thanks to the most notorious podcast and Diane's appearance on it in October for turning me on to your show. I think it's wonderful how supportive the podcast community is towards each other. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I really enjoyed being on there with Eric, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback on that. And we just want to thank you, BJ, for your service to our country. We know the sacrifice that military families go through. I had commented back to BJ and let him know that my cousin had just been in Iraq a few years ago, and we've watched their family get uprooted and moved here and moved there, and him having to go be deployed to war zones and It's a a tough life, and you guys sacrifice so much, so we greatly appreciate you doing that, and we hope you get back safe. Yes, most definitely. We also heard from Preston via the website, Love the Podcast. I start work at 2 a.m. every morning and spend the whole day in a truck. Love having something great to listen to while I'm on the road besides terrible radio music. Thanks. And from Dylan McNamara, I listen by iTunes. I really enjoy your shows. Thank you for your work and effort for the series. And then we want to send out a shout out to Miss Malone One from Instagram. And she just got engaged at Disneyland. So congratulations to you. Yes, congratulations. And we can't have just one engagement. We also want to congratulate our Rachel Z, who might have a name that we can pronounce in the future, but she also got engaged recently as well. So congratulations to you as well, Rachel. I think that's what we're most thrilled about, Rachel, is that you might have a name change there. (laughs) I don't know. I kind of like having Rachel Z. Mysterious Z. We're still going to call you Rachel Z no matter what. But we already know her fiance, I guess is what we'll call him now. He's a very nice guy. Yeah. So does he officially now earn his pin that we gave him? Well, you know, I think he can consider the pin that we gave him official now then since he doesn't listen to the podcast. But as long as you're married to the other person, we generally give you a pin too. So yeah. And he did come on the meetup and now he's married into the family, so to speak. Oh, that sounds really cultish. <laughs> we have a couple of things based on our last episode, Denise, number 175. First of all, we heard from our listener, Kelly Helter. She said, just started listening to the latest podcast and I had to share something with you all. She said that she had heard that there is a ghost called Peppy at the Santa Maria Inn and it's spelled P-E-P-I. And she said, could this be Peppy Letter? When I saw the dialogue that was in regards to the channeled spirit, the name that they'd put there was Peppy, just like a Peppy person, like P-E-P-P-Y. But this Peppy letterer, who could possibly be the spirit, was a real person. And Kelly posted her picture. She said she was Marion Davies' niece and along with her brother headed up a crew of the younger degeneration at Hearst Castle. She was indeed a cocaine addict and she committed suicide after being forcibly committed to an asylum and separated from her girlfriend. So apparently she was gay and maybe that's why they put her in the asylum. I think her real name was Eleanor or something like that. Peppy was a nickname, but she was totally real and interesting in her own right. I learned about her by reading Barry Paris's spectacular bio of Louise Brooks. Wow. So that's very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, it was just really cool, Denise, because, you know, when you see something where psychics say, hey, we channeled this spirit and they don't give you any historical background with it. I'm just left to say, well, maybe it just made that up or it's come from nowhere. So maybe there was some legitimacy there to that channeling that happened. Well, and how often is a woman named Peppy? I mean, yeah, I mean, you're not just going to pull that out unless somehow they knew the history there and she was just making that part up. But I just think it's really cool that there was this woman out there that kind of coincided with that, that would have been connected and would have stayed at this inn and stuff and that was near the Hearst Castle. So either that psychic really was picking up on something or she did some really good research. Also, we talked about Rudolph Valentino And I had done like just a a little sidebar mention, Denise, about this tin that I remembered growing up with in my mom's house. So I'm over at my mom's house on Friday because I clean their house for them. They're one of my clients. And lo and behold, the tin is still in the family. 
sitting there on a shelf. And my mom said, oh, this sent me down kind of a side track hearing you mention that. And she goes, as a matter of fact, that was your grandmother. So it wasn't something that my mom had picked up at an antique store. It was actually something my grandmother had owned. So we get it out and we're looking at it. and We're like, huh, I wonder what this could have been. You know, what did they use this for? Yeah, like mints, chocolate, like what, yeah. what went in it? We're like candy, body powder. And so we were looking at it. We looked at the bottom of it. So my mom went down that rabbit hole for us. <laughs> See, oh, I, I get so, other people. So we have it. two Alice's in the family. <laughs> and Bob Sherfield also went down that rabbit hole because I posted the picture up in the crew. And I was like, what do you think was in this? Well, we'll let him be the white rabbit. All right. Bob is our white rabbit. Well, this was from J.M. Bostwick and Sons, and I have an advertisement right here that was from November 21st, 1922. It appeared in the Janesville Daily Gazette. And right at the top, as you can see there, Denise, is the tin featuring Rudolph Valentino. There's several of them sitting here. It says the new Boda Box. I think that's how you say it. It's B-E-A-U-T-E-B-O-X. Something new, something novel, something useful, handsomely decorated by a famous artist, your favorite movie star on a Bota box. Rudolph Valentino, B.B. Daniels, Pola Negri, Betty Compton, Gloria Swanson, Mae Murray, and others. The very thing for gifts, favors, and prizes. Covers of round boxes can be used for wall decorations, plaques, etc. The Bota box has dozens of uses. Here are a few. Candy, fruit, cake, crackers, nuts, handkerchiefs, gloves, jewels, sewing, Lunches, cigarettes, cigar humidors, tobacco humidors, collars, playing cards, poker chips, manicure utensils, face powder, rouge, etc., etc. Prices range from 20 cents to a dollar on sale in fancy goods sections. And my mom also read that they would give these out as promotional things at silent movie premieres. So my grandmother literally could have gone to see the cheek and gotten this as a promotional item. Or she might have just bought it in the store. Yeah, maybe she was secretly enamored with Rudolph Valentino yeah, as a they, young woman. It could have been. I mean, he's a good looking guy on there. I just thought how neat. It was kind of fun to go down that road and see this. And there was all different kinds of them out there. Yeah. So that's it's always fun, like the things that we discover just by researching and doing the podcast. Then, Denise, I discovered another podcast out there that I've been binge listening to. It's called History Dweebs. And this has got three hosts on there. You've got Tim, the Colonel, and Brandy. And I'm on Team Brandy because they each have their own little team. Now, let me just preface this before you guys all run out and subscribe to it, that it may not be a podcast for everyone. It deals humorously with the dark side of history. So if you don't like irreverency or maybe crude kind of comments or crass type of comment, something like that, this may not be the podcast for you. Certainly not for children. There is explicit stuff that's in it. So you may want to listen to it. But if, if you do, give it a chance. Don't just listen to the first five minutes. You know, Denise, we have people who've given us one-star reviews because they hate our chit-chat. Exactly. Well, there's a lot of chit-chat here. So if you don't like that, you're probably not going to like the show either. And listen to it. And I, I could tell you, Denise, at first I was like, what is this? And then I smiled. And then I was laughing hysterically. I was just rolling the whole time. So I really enjoy it. The other thing that I think is really cool about this podcast, Denise, is that it's like our twin, maybe perhaps our darker twin or our irreverent twin. Well, it could be our yin and yang. There you go. We are yin and yang. I hadn't even thought about that. Ta-da. But why I say that is because they are building a family rather than a community, rather than a group of listeners. They have a family. 
And I think that's really cool. And then I went over to their Patreon page and I saw that they are a podcast like us, committed to being listener supported. They just come forward and say, hey, you're part of our family. If you guys want to support the show monetarily, great. Even if you don't support the show monetarily, we're still going to do it. So now, Denise, they've become one of the podcasts that we have added to our list that we support. Yes, they have. The other really cool thing is I went over, I joined their group on Facebook. And after I did that, uh, Tim, who's one of the co-hosts there, sent me a private message. And this pertains to our month in history segment that we did. And I asked him if it was okay if I shared this with everybody because it's personal stuff. And he said that uh, he was fine with that. Oh, good. He said, hi, Diane. I just wanted to let you know I really enjoyed your latest episode. Also, your This Month in History segment. My ex-wife is Cambodian and was eight years old when the Khmer Rouge took over. She spent four years separated from her parents working in a concentration camp. She eventually found her way to Thailand where she was rescued by some aid workers. She moved to the U.S. when she was 14. We visited Cambodia in 1999. I saw the killing fields and an old high school had been converted into a prison by the KR. It was a horrific sight. Bloodstains were still very visible on the concrete floor. She saw her grandparents starve to death, and she basically worked sun up to sun down in rice paddies. I'm happy your show is reminding people of this event. So many younger folks don't know about it. Yeah, so that, I mean, when I just think of that, my stomach just gets gets sick. It gets a sick feeling of what we have done in history as human beings to other people. It's just disgusting. Well, you know, Denise, they say that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's just people like this scumbag Pol Pot, Adolf Hitler, Chairman Mao, all of them. Stalin. Mm -hmm. They get into power and millions of people die. And this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. There was a movie, The Killing Fields, was made a few years ago. But yeah, it's definitely not something that people talk about in history class. I certainly didn't learn about it in history class. So I don't know if they're teaching it nowadays, but definitely something people should know. So I'm glad that we were able to put that out there and put a little bit of a personal feel to it. So thank you, Tim, for sharing that. Yes. And also, if you talk to your ex-wife, tell her thank you for allowing us to share a bit of her story. And, and we're glad that she escaped all of that and wish her the best. We have a couple of reviews to share from iTunes. The first review is from Sig Sig Signify. Love it. Five stars. This is an updated review. They bumped their rating up to a five star. The host used to be a little chatty, but over the last few months, they fixed that. It's now an excellent paranormal podcast. I look forward to every episode. Well, thank you very much for that. And Cesro, History and the Paranormal, Match Made in Heaven, five stars. I just love this show. I've always been quite interested in the paranormal, and I love studying history. Blending the two into a podcast is genius. The hosts are so easy to listen to, and they're funny. Some paranormal podcasts are interesting, but the host or guests are sometimes difficult to listen to. Not this one. I listen while I work since I have a desk job and can't get enough of this show. I'm new to this podcast, and so I'm finding myself listening to three to five in a day. Don't tell my boss. Loving it, and keep up the wonderful work, ladies. Well, thank you so much. We won't tell your boss. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Preston Headley and Matt Zupka. We'd like to thank Rhonda Borgen for upping her donation. And also thank you to Donna Hart for your one-time donation. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like 
the page and follow us.